We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. And welcome back to the Arsenal Vision Postmatch Podcast. This is Mean Lean from ArsenalVision.co.uk. Unfortunately, this week, James has been dismissed for two bookable offences, so he will not be featuring. But Elliot and Paul will be discussing the 2-1 defeat away to Dynamo Zagreb. So they haven't watched the whole match, so I won't go into any detail about the game itself, but it seem from the outside that our performance didn't match the one we put in against Stoke. And that maybe that's down to the changes made in the team. Not the players themselves, but those players haven't played any football in some cases. And that would impact the team greatly. But not all is lost. It's only the first game. And if we can win our home games and pick up some points elsewhere away from home, we can still qualify from this. And if those rested players come into the team on Saturday and we can get a good result against Chelsea, then, you know, it's not the end of the world. So let's not cry about it just yet. But yeah, we've got some work to do in the Champions League now. And uh, losing the first game isn't the best start. And it doesn't help. But um, let's not go overboard just yet. Anyway... Before I pass you over to the guys, just want to say a few things. Uh, firstly, apologies for the advert in the middle of last the last podcast. That wasn't intentional. Mistake on my part. It shan't happen again. Uh, secondly, if you download this podcast uh, via iTunes or Acast, and you haven't come across the Arsenal Vision website, then check it out. Match previews, reviews, blogs, and post-match Q&As, and all sorts of stuff like that. So give it a bash if you haven't done so already. And um, I will be back after Chelsea but enjoy the podcast so until then 
squad rotation leads to disastrous performance, and I'm just talking about the podcast. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. I am here with Paul. James is not here. We've rotated the squad. I am sure it will be with disastrous results, but we will be in good company because Arsenal rotated the squad, and the results were, well, almost not doing a podcast over. But we are your friendly professional podcast, and we believe in doing a pod for every single game except James, who... Uh, had an unfortunate incident with a toaster in a bathtub. So, um, Paul is here. You can find him on Twitter at Posing in My Pants. Hello, Paul. Hello. Pa- a pod when we're winning. We only. Uh, I did actually try and talk us out of it, didn't we? Didn't you I? did. There was a WhatsApp conversation in which you said I'd rather do terrible things to myself than podcast. James just decided to blame actual life responsibilities for not being on the pod, which uh, I'm sure he wouldn't have done if it was a seven-nil victory, but. You know what? It wasn't a 7-0 victory. It was a 2-1 defeat. Paul, you and I got into it a little bit on WhatsApp, and so let's start there. You put this one squarely on the manager, which usually I'm never shy about doing. You think the rotation is directly what led to it. So what do you think? I mean, in our last podcast, I said I thought he'd rotate. He did. He brought in Giroud. He brought in Oxlade chamberlain He brought in Arteta. He brought in Debushi. He brought in Gibbs. He brought in Ospina. Too much? Yes. I mean, easy to now, say with hindsight, but going in, yeah. did you feel it was too much? I did, yeah. Um, now, you know, you calmed down a bit afterwards, and maybe I was a little, in our WhatsApp, maybe I was a little too too critical of him over the players. Um, obviously, the red card was a major issue, but we were already 1-0 down at that stage. And they'd waltzed through our midfield for that goal uh, and cut open our defense. The gap between, ironically, our two centre-backs and our uh, right-back was uh, rent in twain. Um, so Keep it to I'm English, still, would you? Yeah, sorry about that. I went biblical. So I'm kind of going back and forward a little bit. I, I might be a bit squidgy on this one. I might be hard to nail down as I'm still trying to come to terms with who You're I want to You're trying to coalesce what happened into some kind of upbeat and positive or optimistic perspective on it. And allow me to help you, there isn't one. <laughs> yeah, well, not really. I'm just trying to work out who I most blame. I mean, I, mm-hmm. if anybody listened to the previous podcast, I had anticipated few rotations because I thought we were playing well. We wanted to capture that in a bottle and better to get in here and get the win secured, and then get a few players off. Mm-hmm. Uh, ironically, we did the opposite. We got the loss, and we flogged 10 men for 95 minutes. So... Well, let's go through some, some of the things that happened in the game. Because All right, so, so just really quickly, since it's just the two of us, and I don't just have to interrupt and bounce questions back and forth, I, I looked at the squad, and I felt, ultimately, it's a squad that should be good enough to compete, right? I mean, it, it, it's, I mean, it's, it's a better squad than Dinamo Zagreb. And I realize it doesn't work that way. There, there is a thing that called cohesion that matters. We've been talking about it all summer and the importance of cohesion and, and that many changes really does risk destroying your cohesion. But again, the players out there probably good enough to win. I think you look at it now and you look at how poor the English teams are performing in Europe especially away. United lost at a very poor PSV side. We lost it at a Dinamo Zagreb side that I think 
is sufficiently inferior to us in terms of the quality they have on the pitch. Manchester City lost uh, at home to a Juventus squad that I don't think had won in their domestic league yet. So you just wonder if maybe tactically there's something about the Premier League that when it's time to play in Europe does not translate. And, And that's not just the Champions League, the Europa League, because last year no English team made it into the last eight of either European competition. And you look at the way we approach the game and the, the buildup is too slow. The passing is slow. We're you know, pressing forward in their half. We leave so much space in behind for counterattacks. And especially against these weaker teams in Europe, you know they're going to play to hit you on the counter. And, and we just look like we're so vulnerable to that still. It's, it's the lessons from Monaco's game at the Emirates last season not learned to me. Um, but you're right that the, the amount of rotation – potentially disrupts any cohesion that the team has. And certainly given the fact that we had a Wednesday game before a Saturday early game and a big Saturday early game, I understand some rotation, but you do risk disrupting any momentum the team's building. And now you look at it and you have to wonder what the mindset of the team is going into the Chelsea game. Now, early in the game, there, there were a lot of things that we can talk about. Let's talk through Giroud's brief appearance in this match. First things first, he had some chances that fell to him. Do you have any criticism of him missing those chances, or do you think they were difficult and the keeper did well and so on and so forth? Well, I'd like to address one point on on your introduction Mm -hmm. uh, to this topic. Um, More more than just my concern about rotation, which I think six players, uh, certainly four new players, um, was an issue. So you're bringing in six players, in effect, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, to a team that was finally hitting his stride. More than that, it's that four of the players hadn't played 70 minutes, 90 minutes. They'd come on as a 10-minute fill-in sub, the kind of bring on all the full-backs kind of way. Um, and I think we saw yesterday, when we were under the cosh for the la- from that first goal and from the red card, um, some players playing like we played as a team against West Ham, and for the same reasons, we were up against a team playing at full intensity when half our team was playing like it was their first game of the season because it was their first game of the season. So more than six six players being rotated, four rotated into the back six with the two fullbacks, the goalkeeper, and the DM, none of whom were up to. It's not a fitness thing. It's not to me. It's not a fitness thing. It's not a quality thing. It's a match preparedness intensity thing. I, I get that, but just just to counter out, or, or um, you know, just to, just to give a different perspective on that, I think that if you look at some of the worst performances on the pitch, uh, Oxlade Chamberlain, Olivier Giroud, Santi Cazorla, you know, players who were really genuinely terrible on the day. Those players have played a decent amount of football so far this season. I mean, I realize Ox isn't a regular starter, but oh, he's played it's... a lot. Giroud has played a lot. Uh, Santi Cazorla has started every single game, and they were all horrendous in this match. And but I realize that it has to do with partnerships as well. They weren't. Giroud was actually playing quite well. No, he was terrible. No, he wasn't. He was terrible. I just 
Just rewatch the first 15, Oh, come minutes. on. Who would do that? I don't even know if I believe you. Why would you do that? A sadist um, and a masochist. All right, well, well Sandy Cazorla okay. was garbage. It was the worst I've seen him play for us in two seasons, I think. And yeah. you can't put that down to match sharpness. Now, you could say he needs Coughlin next to him and that Arteta who just – He needs Coughlin next to him. Okay. And the worst thing you could have done was for Mikel Arteta's first game of the year, uh, and we talked about this on WhatsApp, pair him with Santi. I mean, give the man a chance to shine or at least not stink. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that made no sense. Well, well um, let's, can, can we do this? Because I think there are yeah. a lot of individual performances that we can talk about. And sure. it's hard, I think, sometimes in a game like this where everything feels like crap and you can just kind of – yeah. blurt out your feelings about it. And it's hard for me to put them into some kind of cohesive order. So let's move through the game a little bit. Yeah. First things first, um, Giroud did have some chances, but then he picked up his first yellow card. Now, I got into a debate with someone on Twitter who was like, well, it was terrible calls and he wasn't getting the calls. And so how can you say he deserved the yellow card? It doesn't matter if the referee is getting every single call wrong. It doesn't change the fact that dissent is a yellow card. I assume you don't have a problem with that first yellow? Uh, I don't, and the manager didn't either. Mm-hmm. And it comes down to smarts, right? I understand Olivier is under a lot of pressure at the moment, and he's a sensitive soul. But <laughs> if you're going to lead the line, this is the Champions League. It's the Champions League. It's Arsenal. There's a referee. There will be a red card. So here we go again. So he he was just stupid. Okay, so so if we agree that there's not much to debate about the the first red the first yellow card, let's get to the second one really quickly. Now, a lot of people got mad at me for saying that's on Giroud. The saying never a yellow. It's a crazy call. You know, it's a foul, but not every foul is a yellow card. If you're a center forward in a situation where there's no danger at all, and you just sort of lazily swing your leg at a ball near the opposition player when you're on a yellow card. I mean, to me, it was a lazy, careless, unintelligent play. Yes, on another day, another referee might have seen sense and just called it a foul and not a yellow. But when you've already castigated the referee and picked up a yellow card for it, I think the onus is now on you to play smarter. So for me, even though I think the second yellow is soft, I think Olivier Giroud is responsible for that yellow card. Agree or disagree? Me, emotionally, I agree. And certainly live at the time, I agree. Uh, you know, given the player the benefit of the doubt, it was a horrible call. But he needed to play smart and tidy. And it was his second instance of not being smart. Uh, and this is the Champions League when you go halfway around to the far side of Europe and you got a Romanian referee who looked like a 12-year-old boy, you got to be smart. So I really do think the rough, the second call was really rough on him. Well, let me ask but you this. It, it was a foul, right? But, you think it was a foul? Yeah. Um, yeah, it was a foul. It's a foul. He swings but, his leg. He kicks the guy in the leg. It's a foul. Yeah. He doesn't need to do it. And, and, and if you watch yeah, it carefully – he reaches for the ball. He stretches for the ball to kick at it instead of moving towards it and bodying out the opponent. It's a lazy play. I mean, I get that it doesn't have to be a yellow, but when you're on a yellow and you've already gotten into a tete-a-tete with the referee, it's it's just a play you don't make. He gave the referee an excuse to send him off. 
It is. A good referee sees it for what it is and puts it all together and says, does all of this amount to a red card and make sure he doesn't give a red card? But this is what you get. In... I get it. Look, he did it later in the match with Joel Campbell. Campbell should have been sent off. He committed two yeah. clear yellow card offenses, and the referee showed some sense in that. But Campbell yeah. hadn't told him where to go stick his head earlier. So, I mean... Here's where I'd hammer Olivier. This is why the first yellow was so ridiculous because of the second yellow. You can debate how marginal it was and whether it was a foul. I think it was a foul. But I agree with you on the second one, his stupidity, but I put the stupidity on the first yellow. He put himself in this situation. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people thought, oh dear, when Olivier got his yellow. Uh, I thought, unlike other circumstances, if I'm watching another team with another striker and they get a yellow early on, I'm like, well, they'll just ma- they'll just work their way through this. But there was cert- a certain impending shit's going to go down from that mm-hmm. yellow. I, I even had a momentary we should bring on Walcott, but then I guess that's my answer to Ospina pulling a hammy too. So. I mean, Giroud did commit four fouls. I mean, he he yeah. had it going on, and I think Ars blog talked about it in his in his in his blog this morning. Instead of channeling his frustration at the way things have been going into a strong, powerful performance where he directed his energies towards the opponent, he kind of he kind of threw himself a pity party. You know, he directed yeah. his anger towards the referee. He was kicking, you know, kicking at people and committing fouls, and I, I just. To me, it was not the performance of a man who really said, I'm going to pour all of my angst into taking it out on the opposition. Um, I think that's right, yeah. Yeah, I don't think it was a mentally strong performance. Now, I said on WhatsApp, and and I'll say this publicly, I think Giroud is done for Arsene Wenger. I think he's done. I think Arsene Wenger will never trust this player again. And here's my argument. I've been saying this for a long time. In big spots for the past few seasons, this manager has avoided using this player. He didn't use him against Bayern Munich when he started Yaya Sanogo, who basically never played football um, for us. And that was following a a frustrating and disappointing off-field incident, I realized, with Giroud. He didn't start him away at Manchester United in a big FA Cup match. He didn't start him in the FA Cup final. He didn't start him in the Community Shield Theo Walcott, who the manager has never really shown any interest in using him as a center forward, has basically replaced Giroud as first choice center forward. No, I mean, let's let's face it, Paul. I mean, he played Theo Walcott as center forward once during a contract negotiation two seasons ago. And other than that, he had never done it until the tail end of last year. Now, that doesn't I'm, – I'm not saying I can read Arson's mind and he never saw Theo as a center Ooh. forward. Okay, Ooh. fine. But, but here's my point. Giroud is done for Arsene Wenger. He, he's been trying to buy a striker for two or three summers now. He tried to buy Suarez. He probably tried to buy Higuain. I think we can all agree he at least was in for him. We were looking at strikers this summer. He bought Danny Welbeck at the tail end of last summer. I think Giroud will be used because we don't have a choice, but it wouldn't surprise me if he wasn't even at the club after this season. And it certainly wouldn't surprise me if he doesn't start any big game again this season as long as the manager has an alternative. Um, I know you disagree. Okay. Give me your counterpoint. Or. or. or yeah. <laughs> and by the way, I'm right, but you can give an alternate perspective. Or I disagree with everything you said, but in the nicest possible way. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, do, do you not at least agree that there's a lot of evidence 
based on starting Walcott ahead of him, based on trying to buy other strikers, based on starting Welbeck ahead of him, based on starting Sonogo ahead of him in big spots, based on a lot of factors and some comments he's made about Giroud needing to pick himself up or do this or do that. Don't you think that that there is at least some merit to the idea that the manager at, at best sees Giroud as plan B? Oh, I think there's a huge amount of merit to the idea that he sees him as a plan B, but a really good plan B, that he's quite happy playing as a plan, plan A from for reasonable periods of the season. Uh, I mean, there's as much evidence that the manager does trust Giroud over the last three windows. Of course he was looking for a striker. Guess what he did in each window? He said, I didn't find the striker I really wanted for my plan A, Mm-hmm. in brackets, but I like what I've got enough. Now, the other thing I would say is, as my wife pointed out to me, if you ever listen to uh, Wenger comment, being a co-commentator on a France international match when Giroud is playing, he he doesn't say that much. He says a little bit here, a little bit there. Then Giroud does something, or Giroud is on the ball. He will lack, wax lyrical about what Giroud was doing and why it was so clever and the intelligence of the player, and how he's setting up the team. He rates Giroud really highly. He just, he, I mean, he I, rates I him so highly as a... It's his player on. at his club. Hang on. He rates him so highly as a plan B striker, he thinks he's reasonable cover for a plan A striker till he finds the striker he wants. And as for Walcott never starting, it's hard to start when you're injured. And, uh, no, no, no. So, I, I just all I'm saying. I think you can't even disagree with this because there's no Theo Walcott. Prior to some contract negotiations two Januarys ago, had been played at striker for Arsenal never z- zero times. I mean, the manager had never demonstrated a willingness to use him. Now you could argue that that's because you know back then had we had Van Persie and yeah, of course, right, okay. But so at best you could say and that Walcott is he, a converted winger, right? I mean, I don't think you can say right so now. To Henry. All right, no, of course. I'm Paul, you know I'm a Theo Walcott fan. I'm not saying he can't become a striker. What I'm saying is the fact that the manager sees Theo in this transitional period to striker as an option ahead of Giroud, who is a France international striker and has always been a striker and a, a real center forward, you know, in physique at least, um, I think demonstrates that he realizes – Giroud just can't lead the line for him. He cannot be his plan A. That's not what I see. I, 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 here's what I would guess, that the manager is pretty even on the two of them. Uh, he's hopeful Theo can fulfill his potential. He wants them to fight it out. Now, this would have been going back a week or so ago. Uh, he sees Olivier in a bit of a funk. He sees Theo on the rise in terms of confidence. Theo is always for all for people talking about Theo and confidence. He always has a bit of cockiness about him. He really does believe in himself. He might lack a little confidence at times on the pitch, uh, as he's kind of getting it. But once he gets a couple of goals, he's a cocky little fucker. Yeah, um, and that's what so, you need. I mean, Olivier, how about this? Let's let's have a little wager here because we like to do wagers on this podcast. Oh Jesus! Outside of the the Capital One Cup and the um. FA Cup, I predict, barring injury, that Olivier Giroud will not start another game at striker until the busy Christmas program. Oh, fuck it. No, no problem. I'll take that wager. How much are we betting? Yeah, we'll do our uh, 
uh, uh, $20 to charity of your choice. So I say Olivier Giroud will not be the starting, will not be in the starting lineup again in Champions League or Premier League, barring injury. So if Theo gets injured, if Alexis gets injured, if you know uh, they're all injured, barring an injury that forces him into that position because there's no alternative, I don't think he will start again in the Champions League or the Premier League until we have those, you know, two games in two days Christmas period. Okay. Serious question. Do you believe in God? <laughs> what the fuck? Why? Just answer the question. It is a serious question. Do you believe in God? Uh, oh, boy. Um, I believe that there is a potentially higher power in the universe. <laughs> I'm still sorting out what exactly my <laughs> spiritual understanding of the universe is. Um, do I believe... Do that Do you think God space wants you to cloud be guy is sitting up there can, pulling the strings? No, but you know. Oh, okay. All right, good enough. Um, uh, I'll explain another time where I care. Anyway, so it doesn't matter now. All right, I will bet $20 with you, but it's not going to charity. It's going to me. Okay. Well, you are a charity. You're a charity case because anyone that thinks Giroud can play center forward obviously needs the money. Um, yeah. Okay. So let's move on. G Giroud gets sent off. Let's talk about Really quickly, another player who has been the subject of a lot of discussion on this podcast, that's Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain. If you haven't listened before, James and I had a bet. James is our other regular podcast member who intelligently decided to abandon this particular episode. Um, we bet about his number of starts uh, for the season in the Premier League. Oxlade-Chamberlain's not doing himself a lot of favors right now. Um, let's get to their first goal. Debushi tucks way in, leaves half the pitch open basically with an invitation sitting on it saying, please attack down our right flank. And Oxlade Chamberlain doesn't spot that that's a danger area. Um, obviously the goal winds up being an Ox own goal, but I think that's more unlucky than his fault, but the fault is not covering back for you. That first goal more on Debushi for his positioning or more on Oxlade Chamberlain for not spotting the danger and covering. It's an interesting point on Debushi. And now that you mentioned it, he was very, very tight. It's a really good pass, really good. Well, it's offside, I mean, probably, but I mean, yeah, th that that pass, is the amount of the space. Is the pass is really good? I got to give them that. Um, so, uh, I think in order of guilt, I'd probably put share pretty evenly between Debushi, Oxley Chamberlain, and Ospina. I think they get a bit each. Mm -hmm. Um. Uh, probably oxed a bit more, but it's just kind of unlucky. I mean, I don't know that Espina did too much wrong there. Um, yeah, but I don't think somehow this is a terrible thing to say, but somehow I don't think it would have ricocheted off Czech in the same way. I don't know why. Yeah, well, to me, it's, it's, it's so harsh to say. Is because you know if you're a professional football player and and you you have awareness of what's going on in the yeah. pitch and you see holy cow you. there's 80 yards of space just totally exposed on our right flank I, i'm being i'm exaggerating obviously but but yeah. just this huge swath of green with no no one in an arsenal shirt standing in it you've got to cover it right yeah um, and he was so slow to respond to it and then i thought even his effort to kind of catch back up to it was was not great. And and not just the goal, but do you feel that Oxlade Chamberlain right now is trying too hard to make everything happen on his own when he has the ball? I mean, he is a wonderful dribbler, but he always looks like he wants to beat five guys. Last night he was dispossessed three times. He had an unsuccessful touch. Um he 
you know, I know Sanchez does some of the same stuff, but Sanchez is in the squad to do that. Alex, when he's in there, especially with Sanchez, now you have two guys that don't play that one-touch passing game, which slows the, the movement down. His passing accuracy was 77% last night, which isn't great. Um, what do you make of him just in terms of trying to do too much on the ball and maybe not contributing to the the type of football we want to be playing in in the attacking part of the pitch? I feel bad for him. I think he's really, uh, Ox is really, really trying at both ends, but he's in a little bit of a funk. I think it might be playing on his mind now. Uh, You know, there were the headlines about uh, uh, Hodgson uh, concerned about his form and him not starting, so he's got that going on. Mm -hmm. He's had his fingerprints on the crime of a few of our calamitous goals in recent times. He started brightly, him and... Ollie were uh, linking up well. If you take the the before the goal, before the red card period, uh, they were they were doing all right, playing pretty well. Um, so I feel a bit bad for him going the other way. I mean, just he always seems to be there, standing with a knife over the body these days. Mm-hmm. The thing is, though, we have five players for three spots up front at the moment, plus Joel Campbell. So no matter what we think. The guy has enough ability going back and forward uh, to be a real asset, and he's just got to work his way through it, and Arson has to work his way through it. He'll, he'll get his 14 starts, no problem, because we don't have those options. He's one of uh, two or three players that can play on both wings, and we need cover. So he's got to get this sorted, and the manager has to stick with him, and maybe it's coming on for the last 20 for the next two, three, four games, but he's got to work through it. He's mm-hmm. got to get his shit together, and he's got to stop being at the scene of the, the crime. Uh, but I'll add one more to our list of people who need to share that blame. That ball was waltzed all the way through our midfield, past uh, Arteta and Santi. Oh, no one gets any should... credit for how that goal developed. I well, just well think... a couple get some blame. Yeah. You know, you don't give any blame to Gabrielle and Koscielny and Gibbs. On, well, me, uh, I'd have to have a look at what Gibbs was doing because it came from his wing. Well, we'll but, get to Gibbs in a minute. <laughs> but, but it waltzed through uh, the space, not the players, but the space where Arteta and Santi should be. And I put that on the manager. That's a combination we shouldn't see Uh in Arteta's first game back. I mean, if I wanted Arteta to be successful, if I was managing his career, I would not want him to start his first 70 to 90 minutes with Santi to his right. That's fair. Look, I mean, I, I think the problem for me is I would differentiate this from the West Ham game in this respect. I thought that the effort in the West Ham game was there. It was just a poor performance, and maybe there there was some nervousness there was not an effort in this game that indicated to me that there was any intensity or urgency about the performance. Um, That's not we, my feeling at all. See, but I, okay. I know where you're coming from. But I would also say, if you look at the comments after the West Ham game, that's what a whole host of people... This is how we feel when there's a, a lack of intensity, which I would accept... But the reason you have a lack of intensity, and comes back to my point, four of these players are not at, it's not a fitness, it's not a quality issue, it's a match intensity thing. This is their first game this season. Yeah, I, okay, I get it. I mean, to, I'm not someone who just says 
there was no effort, no energy every time we lose a game. I thought there was good effort and energy I in know. the West Ham game. I, 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 I didn't think there was in this game. Now, uh, we'll, we'll come to where I, where I thought the classic example of that was in a moment. But, you know, just to highlight one point, we didn't look like we knew what we were doing out there at times in the first half. Like, there was no plan. Um, my favorite piece of play to sum up the first half of that game was Giroud at one point popped up all the way on the left touchline, like with his heels on the left touchline, receives the ball. There's no one anywhere near the box. Gibbs overlaps. He gives Gibbs the ball. Gibbs looks up. There's nobody in the box. Giroud is standing on the left touchline, and he puts in like a really soft cross to the penalty spot to no one. And the the Dynamo players collect it, and there's like this moment of panic at first, and then they look around and realize like, there's nobody here. And they just walk it back up the pitch. <laughs> it was the strangest period of play. And there was so many moments like that. And maybe to your point, Paul, that is down to the fact that it's just too many changes and too little cohesion. But, um, you know, we came out in the second half. That's the other thing, too. I was surprised at how lackluster we came out of the dressing room. You know, you would have thought that the manager would have, you know, given them the hairdryer treatment, a la Alex Ferguson, and they would have come out fired up. It didn't look that way. Real quick, would you have like to have seen him make a change or two at halftime to show the urgency to, to, to recover this. I know that's not traditionally his style, but he has done it. Um, would well, you like he to have the that? excuse? He had the excuse if, if he didn't want to hurt any of his feelings. That we're that down to 10 whole, men. And, yeah. We're down to 10 men, as we are on this. So were cross. you disappointed he didn't make the change at that time? Did, did you see enough to suggest we were coming back into the game that he was right to stick with it? Or No. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was dis- yeah, I was disappointed, and I wanted to see a change. I don't don't know that that's right. Maybe it was just my frustration, because you know, I would have wanted to I would have wanted to see us play a little bit more conservatively and stick Theo on and save our energy a little bit. Now, I don't. Uh, I'd love to have the date on this, because I don't actually know if sitting in a low block, which might have been a good option for the whole game, <clears throat> to save our energies and still win it, is less is more energy efficient than trying to dominate the ball, which right. was our original plan. Now, with 10 players, uh, I don't know. I, I'd have a tendency to be more conservative. I mean, you've already at this stage cooked your goose uh, for this game. So if you're going to do something, bring Theo on. Yeah, and then take who off? I mean, Oxlade-Chamberlain, is that the change you would make? Um, I think I would. I think that's the change I'd make. <clears throat> you need... Uh, Ozil and Sanchez for the build-up play. I think I'd sit back, conserve energy, take our lumps, given that we were uh, one goal down at halftime, and bring on Theo, conserve energy, and just try and hit them on the counter. You're only one goal behind, and Theo's well capable of getting another goal. Now, maybe they're the team that wanted to sit back Given that they had a goal to present to to protect, but mm-hmm. I still think you do your best to draw them on to you, and you play conservatively. But again, that's it's easy to say in hindsight. We, you know, I think they scored on 58 minutes, and we brought the subs subs on just after 60 minutes, 63, 64 minutes. Um, and unfortunately, you're flogging Sanchez and Ozil all over the pitch basically all the way through to that point and then you're chasing the game anyway mm-hmm. so 
yeah, I think I would have brought on T.O. early and and just changed what we were doing. Well, we didn't. Um, we didn't. Hate to hate to break that to you. So instead, mm -hmm. we came out and did more of the same and sort of with the same results. For their goal, I thought it was really, really disappointing. I've watched that goal seven times probably to try to figure out what was going on. And it seems very clear to me that Mikel Arteta is in position and then lets a guy just kind of walk right by him, doesn't leap, doesn't push, doesn't step forward, doesn't make any effort to contribute to any defensive side of that play. But he's almost outdone by the lack of effort Kieran Gibbs makes to get to that ball at all. Um it's really poor by both of them. And the manager kind of called it out after the match saying, we're good enough to defend a corner kick like that, which is basically saying, it's not that we don't know how to do it. It's that we didn't try. Um, what did you make of that goal? Is that one on Gibbs and Arteta for you, or did you see it differently than I did? I think in the game situation, I think that's right. It's on Gibbs and Arteta, but I think it's mostly on the manager in that this is what you get when you play it's almost like the game passed the two of them by at that moment, mm -hmm. like they weren't tuned in because they weren't tuned in. It this was a total lack of focus and energy moment from them, both of them. Yeah. This is what happens when you're not at game intensity. The the play passes you by. You know, this is West Ham. Absolute West Ham, those two goals. Where but you're like, just real quick, should, shouldn't this be – Shouldn't the idea be, instead of playing my regular guys who play every week and might take Dinamo Zagreb lightly, I'm going to rotate, and these guys are going to come in so hungry to show that they belong in the starting lineup that, that they're going to paste these guys 7-0 because they, they're so hungry to prove that they want to bang the door down to be a regular. I mean, isn't that it, in theory? It is, but you don't bring in six of them, mm -hmm. and you... I'd much prefer to see Debushi play for a Premier League game. You know, he's the one rotation. And then Arteta comes in when we're playing, maybe not this Stoke, but, you know, in a few in a few games' time, we're playing the next Stoke at home at the Emirates. When we, you know, if we value the Champions League, I mean, maybe it comes down to the fact that he, he that Wenger took this for granted despite for everything, despite everything he said. Uh, treated as a glorified um, uh, Carling Cup game, Capital One Cup game, mm -hmm. on the basis that we had enough games to recover and that we were only ever likely to come second in the group unless we had a great run. It's and such horseshit, though. I love the the. The, he tried to cut a corner on it. The, and he the Premier got League caught. teams act like big shots, and they stroll into these matches, and they rotate away at PSV, and they rotate away at Dinamo Zagreb, and they rotate away in the Europa League, and then none of them make it to the last eight of any of these competitions. They routinely get embarrassed, not just by the good teams, but by the not good teams. And here we are saying that not next season, but the season after next, we'll probably only have three Champions League spots. If I were a broadcaster, I'd be furious. I paid billions of dollars for the Premier League because it's supposedly the best league in the world. And these teams just consistently under-deliver under in part because they don't take the, the, the opposition as, as seriously as they should. Um, but it's just, it's frustrating because, you know, you look at this match. They would. What, what was that? I was just saying, as seriously as they said they would. I mean, Arsenal well, right. gave a great speech beforehand. Uh, see, I was just going to say, you look at this match, Paul, and you look at it in the context of the group. And let's just assume, and I know you can't make this assumption, but for a second, let's do it. Let's assume 
all the teams lose home and away to Bayern. Okay? It's not out of the question that that could happen. So let's say we lose home and away to Bayern, Dinamo, Olympiacos, they both do. You basically have a little group of three teams going for second. And if we win away at Dinamo, we're really well on our way to being through the group. You win your two home games and you're basically there. That's it. Um, That's why I didn't want to rotate. Yeah, yeah. Well, all right. Look, I'm not saying for all the games. I'm saying for this one. I know we've got Chelsea around the corner, but I never thought this was the way to conserve energy. No. Put this game to bed as early as possible. You know, if you if you're going to try and cheat, cheat on the let's try and get this wrapped up at six at 60 minutes and wherever we're at, we'll scale back. If we're at a you know, if you're losing, okay, you got to go for it. But if we're drawing or we're ahead, we'll start playing conservatively. That yeah. that was my feeling on it. And Mourinho, the see you next Tuesday that he is, came out with his. Oh, I can't imagine how I would feel waking up after losing tomorrow with a derby at the weekend. He's such a. <laughs> um, so all right, we look. We we concede the second. The game is lost, but I thought there was a pointed substitution. I mean, he made a triple substitution, which he rarely does, and it's within six minutes of the second goal. And Arteta and Gibbs both come off. I don't think, you know, Arteta, Gibbs, and Ox came off. You could argue that that was what he had in mind, regardless of the second goal. They were all struggling, and they were all candidates to come off anyway. But I think the fact that Arteta and Gibbs basically stood there and watched the second goal go in certainly helped the manager's decision to haul them off six minutes later. Uh, Ox went off as well. Walcott, Campbell, and Coughlin came on. I thought Campbell was basically useless, and, and he's a player that it makes me sad that he's one of the guys we're using to try to rescue a game at this point. I just, you know, for anyone who says that there's no one in the world we could have bought that would strengthen our squad. There's someone we could have bought better than Joel Campbell who might've come on and made a difference last game. I mean, let's talk about the end game, the the last few opportunities we had. So before we get to Theo and his goal, Coughlin coming on made a massive difference and immediately saw the impact it made in in the center of the park. And also just in our, our performance generally for you was this game as glaring an example as you could possibly ask for, for how important Cochrane has become, but also just how risky it is because we don't have anyone that we really can probably rely on behind him. Yes. And yes. I mean, there's not too much to say. There's such a huge fall off after Cochrane. On the other hand, he's, he's been and being great. Um, I mean, he can't play 60 games in a season and, and based on at least, you know, 63 minutes, it doesn't look like we have anyone else who can play there. I mean, Flamini isn't even wanted and Arteta does not look like he can do it anymore. So what I would say, I guess where I diverge a bit, and this is hope rather than confidence. Fair enough. Yeah, go for it. I hope that Arteta is a hell of a lot better than he appeared to be yesterday. I don't think he is at this point. That's why I would have wrote, continued to rotate him in, maybe in dribs and drabs, give him... I, I mean, he hasn't really come on properly as the DM, except for 10 minutes here or 15 minutes there. I'd want to kind of give him 30 minutes um, in a proper match, uh, then start him, but make him the only change, and in a game in which you're going to play Ramsey beside him, to to rotate Ramsey out and start Arteta for his first game. Um, that's why I say he, di- he didn't set 
Arteta up to be successful. So, and you know, watching the first 15 or 20 minutes, which doesn't tell you too much, uh, Arteta was okay. He did. Uh, I know he didn't have any tackles, blah blah blah. But when you actually watch him, he actually did some good coverings. He had an interception. He was in the right place. Uh, he bumped a few guys, even if he didn't tackle them. He was okay until I would say until the goal, where they waltzed through him and Santi. He was doing okay. Well, I'll give, I'll give you the real quick example of where Arteta is different. Coughlin came in and played, we thought, very well and made a big difference, but had a 69% pass accuracy. Arteta, who we thought played terribly, had a 90% pass accuracy. That's what Arteta does. He's the metronome. He, he gets it and gives it, and he's accurate with his passing, and he helps your possession game. Um, yeah. Coughlin's the one thing I'll say player. for Coughlin quickly is, I mean, Coughlin usually has 88% or whatever pass, and I think it was just a function that when he came into this game, he didn't come in with his normal role. He was actually coming in trying to force the play. So, yeah. you know, in his defense, I know your point was more about Arteta. Yeah, He's I mean, that, Arteta's going to do the, do the job in a different way, but yeah. the legs do seem to be a problem with Arteta now, and I think when the legs go in that position, it, it makes everything harder. He's a very intelligent player and a very technical player, but but athletically, I, I don't hope know that he his legs are a lot better than they showed yesterday. Mm-hmm. And this isn't how I would have introduced him. You, you're just dropping him in it. So uh, my hope, I'm just because otherwise we're fucked. My hope is yeah. we need to intro- we needed to, and we need to from here on in build him up and play him with the player beside him that that doesn't leave this leave it all on him and his legs. This Uh, is where I also, I mean, get a little frustrated with the manager at times. When he signed Christian Bielik last January, he said, oh, he'll go straight into the first team. And here we are playing a Champions League match where that morning he played for the U19s or whatever. I mean, don't get me wrong. Maybe he becomes a great player for us. I'm not saying it's a bad signing. I'm just saying, don't treat us like idiots. He's not an option for the first team squad. Um, He's not a purchase that strengthens the squad or adds depth. He's one for the future and maybe a good one for the future. But he's not part of the squad. He's and a kid. So he's a kid. You know, and so don't don't even, you know, don't say he goes right into the first team squad like like he's adding to our depth and helping solve a squad problem. I just think, you know, yeah. there was so much debate on the transfer window about the only players that would help us being at Real Madrid and Barcelona and being superstars. And we, you know, we look at last night and you have a clear example that Mikel Arteta may be past it, and Joel Campbell, who should be nowhere near Arsenal, comes on and you know has a performance befitting of the quality of player he is, which is horrendous. And I, I had people tweet me that said, oh, he played some good passes. He looked good. He was horrible, absolutely horrible, nowhere near Arsenal quality. And the fact that he's still at Arsenal is a disappointment in and of itself. But um, Theo did get a goal, great pass from Sanchez, great collect uh, um, touch and finish from Walcott. It's really the only bright spot. Um, you know, I, I know you love Theo Walcott, is the one great takeaway from this, Paul, that Theo seems to really be coming into his own and and that goal just adds to his belief that he can play center forward and can lead the line for Arsenal. And if anything, this game is a throwaway, but hopefully it just continues to build the confidence for Theo, who's going to become an increasingly important player for us. Well, that would certainly be the hope out of all, all of it. I mean, I don't know if he proved anything last night. We I'm not talking about proving, know. but just another yeah. step in his yep. development and confidence that – and, you know, look, we've seen a lot of false dawns, so to speak, with Theo. This, that's a goal he's scored before, but yeah. we're going to need him. He's going to be starting a lot of games at center forward for us. So 
is that is that the positive, the bright point? It is. I mean, he's going to come out of this two goals in two games. Uh, the positive for me is I think we look better with Theo as the striker. I think he brings the best. I won't go into my long version of this. You've all heard it. But I think he brings the best out of a few other people, including Sanchez. Just movement, uh, almost vacating the center forward spot is an invitation for Sanchez to get into the box. So if you like things, you want to see Sanchez as a striker, uh, you kind of get a bit of that every time Theo plays. Mm -hmm. So, the, yeah, for me, the positive, though I would bite my tongue on it last night because, you know... You, you no one, was, like in the, no one was in the mood for it, yeah. I was in the mood and it looks like you're on a different freaking wavelength. But, yeah, that's a little bit of a positive for me. I would like to see Theo starting two-thirds of the games, Ollie starting a third. I also really liked that the manager said... His justification for the Stoke game was a bus parking team at the Emirates is a, a scenario that suits Theo. Now, I don't know if he was just being polite at the time, but that means all games suit Theo. Well, yeah, because the if they come out and definitely play, suit definitely suit yeah. I, I think he has to say that, Paul, because, again, it, it at least yeah. fits my narrative, narrative alert, that he doesn't trust Giroud and he's got to play Theo up as his center forward. Um I would, yeah, my take on it is that he's protecting Ollie a little bit till his confidence gets back up, blah, blah, blah. But I guess it's a, a version of the same thing. I've got three quick uh, final things to talk about. I mean, the, the game petered out. Um, we we never really made the push for the second that we probably should have. It never felt like it was coming. There were a couple of dumb Joel Campbell fouls that slowed the game down. I thought Dinamo did a nice professional job of basically killing off the game by wasting time, but what do you expect them to do? Can't get mad at that. Um, there was a bad Gabrielle giveaway, I think, at one point where they could have and probably should have scored a third. But ultimately, you know, we, we didn't win. We didn't uh, get anything from the game, and it does put us in a tough spot in the group. Although, obviously, with Bayern there, you know, we still have every chance to, to qualify second, which is sort of our modus operandi right now. Um, for one thing, I I think just really quickly, and I, I know you're not really going to have much to say about this because we're going to disagree. But one of my problems is I, I just think we always overrate our players. And I think every team's supporters overrates their players. And when people were listing the squad this summer, you know, and saying, oh, you know, only superstars would improve us. And you'll say, oh, well, we have, we have Oxley Chamberlain, we have Jack Wilshire, and we have Joel Campbell, and we have... Um, Mikel Arteta and you know people aren't even going to be able to get into the squad and we have Danny Welbeck and you know we have too many players and then you look at it and you're like well Arteta's passed it and Jack's a crock and Welbeck's out for the season and Joel Campbell's absolute hot garbage and Oxley Chamberlain's not really the finished article yet and isn't someone you can depend on week in week out and suddenly you look at it and you say we really don't have the depth we thought we did because the players we all list as depth maybe aren't as good as we'd like to think I mean is there something to this, Paul, that unfortunately a lot of the the supporting cast, so to speak, the players that aren't everyday starters, are nowhere near as good as we like to think they are, and that maybe once we aren't playing our first 11, we really are a much weaker team than, than we'd like to believe? Well, I think of the selection you picked, I wouldn't argue too much apart from, for the reasons that I mentioned already, the Ox is a talent he's got skills he's got all the skills he just needs to get his head right right now uh, of the others you know y your points are well made uh, I have a lot of time for Danny 
and for Jack Wilshire, but uh, we knew they were injured and we know Jack's Jack. Mikel Arteta should be our third choice at DM, not our second. Yeah, and that's that's uh, a decision. You know, that's a decision you can make. You can you can choose to go yeah. get someone to compete for that spot. You can make a bid for a, a Schneidlin. I don't I don't want to get back into transfers again, but it, is the, there the one, too much the one but in some of these? I was le- well, the one yeah in those players yes by us, but the but is everywhere else in the park and that. That's a lot of other places. We have really good quality, you know, position by position. I think our players are really good. Um, Yeah, the starting players. I mean, but you start to look at it and you say Giroud Theo as a 1-2 or 2-1 center forward combination is probably on the weak side to be competing for the big honors. And on the right side, we're playing Ramsey, who isn't a right-sided player. And the alternative for him there is Ox and Joel Campbell, neither of whom look and ready Theo. to step up. Well, right, but Theo doesn't play there anymore because he's center forward. You can't list him as both if he's yes, a starting center forward. Well, all right. Yes, you can. If okay. you don't play him, you know, Yeah, you but can. we haven't seen that, not once all season, right? I mean, when Giroud starts, Theo doesn't. When Theo starts, he starts at center forward. Um, but you, you know what I'm saying? Like, Coughlin is a guy who has been playing brilliantly, but is sort of a recent revelation, and behind him, no, basically... No, no, there's no, no butts on Cockle. No, no, the butt is behind him, we have no one. So if he does suffer right. any kind of dip in form or fatigue, there's there's no one to come in behind him. And you yeah. just start to go through position by position, and maybe there are uh, a lot of words on this squad. Uh, the only position by position that I will buy into is the center forward. And, and the right wing. That's a long... Uh, I mean, you got the Ox, you got Theo. I'm sorry, that's that's second to nobody. Oh, okay, but I, so I, name for me your best front three Arsenal can put out on the pitch. Um, Theo, Ramsey, and Sanchez. And okay. I know a lot of people have an issue with Ramsey. I don't. I, I I'm not. I don't like I don't it. Have in an every issue game. with Ramsey? No, I don't think anyone no, has an issue with Ramsey. No, no, in the front three. Okay, in the front three. I, I don't, especially with Theo starting, it makes Ramsey kind of Muller-esque mm-hmm. in terms of he makes those runs in behind. I mean, uh, he had a beautiful opportunity against Stoke, that ball over the top. I think it was by Sanchez, a little lob onto Ramsey's chest. He didn't finish off. I think he was a little tired after the Wales game. That's I'll throw that in as an excuse. But he makes those runs. He gets into the six-yard box. All those times in other seasons where we said, why isn't there a second run into the box with the striker? That's Ramsey. He does that, especially from the right-wing spot. And in other games, he provides the overload on the left. So I know I know it's a bone of contention, but I'm not backing off Ramsey being a really good option at right-wing. Yeah, I, I, w- I would agree with that. And again, you know, I'm not sitting here just trying to tear the side apart. I think we have a lot of quality in the side. I just think... Some of the players we list off that roll off our tongue, like this example that we're overloaded with quality and we don't even have room for other players, are not as good as maybe we think. You know, the players. There were a that... couple of spots we could have signed for this summer. I, yeah. I don't disagree with that. And it's on the manager and his recruiting staff to find these players. Yeah. There's and, somebody and, out there. And ultimately, you know, my attitude about that is you don't, not every player you buy has to come in to be a star, get someone you rate and let them go fight for a squad spot. And maybe they surprise you like Coughlin did last year. One, one other thing, um, last year we were terrible 
when we fell behind. I don't think we recovered a single point from a trailing position last season, and we're off to that same start this season. Why are we so bad at chasing games? What is it about the way we play, Paul, that makes it so difficult for us to recover from a losing position? We used to be pretty decent at it, but now when we go a goal down, we're more likely to go two goals down than come back to 1-1. Is there something you see specific to us and the way we're playing that makes us so bad at recovering uh, a game once once we fall behind? I don't know what it is, but I mean, I certainly have my frustration. I've said it a couple of times. We don't really seem to have a kind of our fire drill for the last five, ten minutes of a game when we really know to get how to that we need to get a goal. We, I'm not sure what our route to getting that goal is. Um, I mean, at the moment, I would say. Uh, my preferred route is start with Theo, who will get a goal first and uh, and solve all that problem. And if that hasn't done it, you bring Ali on at twi- at, with 20 minutes to go, and he's in a position where at least now if we're going to get a bit hectic and start banging in crosses, he's probably a good man for that. And he's got fresh legs against their tired legs, and suddenly he actually looks reasonably quick and sharp. But we haven't seen much of that because we haven't really started too many games with... Theo as the starting point, but short of that, I don't know what our answer would be. Well, if we had Welbeck, that'd be another story. We yeah. we could go after it, but we really don't have a way. Of See, I think it's people. naivety. I, I naivete. God, I cannot say that word. I I, I think it's tactical. It, I think it's a it's a tactical thing where once a team gets a lead on us, they can sit in a low block and just collect any loss of possession in midfield and kick long. I mean, you, you so the United game at home last season for me and the the Monaco game at home last season were the two most glaring examples of the wrong way to chase a game when you're behind. And I just don't you think that we yeah there there's we're there's more at turning the screw. In fact, in many games we don't seem to have a screw because our our the nature of our play is about patience. Yeah. And that doesn't seem to fit the last 10 or 15 minutes unless you are really good at turning the screw patiently, like a Barcelona might be. And we're just not quite good enough to turn the screw in that sense. You know, a, Sir Alex would have chased the game in a different way. Now, we're not a United-type team. We're not going to start banging in crosses from the wings, but actually that's kind of what we tend to do. So if we're going to do that, bring on Giroud with 15, 20 minutes to go and and really go at it. But, yeah, we're not very good at this yet. Uh, to be honest, I think it's a part of an evolution. We're not – in a sense, we're not good enough to be worrying about this yet because we need to get to a point where we're really playing with our force, with our style, and doing the business. Then you build the confidence – then you know how to get a goal. I think it's kind of this is the next problem to solve after we solve the first problem, which mm-hmm. is really getting our shit going, as yeah. we kind of did against Stoke, but that was just Stoke. Uh, yeah, and I, I think Stoke could be among the worst teams in the Premier League, especially away. Um, and we, we talked about all the reasons for that before, so I won't go into it again. But so, All right, so we'll leave on this. Um, and by the way, I'll, for the sake of fairness, as bad as we've been when we fall behind, we've been excellent when we take the lead. When we take leads in games, we basically win. When we fall behind in games, we don't get a point. And I think if you're going to win big trophies, 
the teams that win big trophies have to be able to recover from a setback. A, a, you know, you look at the Monaco game, the first goal they scored was kind of a cheap goal, right? It was that deflection. Ospina was kind of rooted. It, it was It was a bit fluky. A good team should be able to recover yeah. and come back from that and impose themselves on the game, and we know how it went from there. Um, same with the United right. game at home last year. We were on top of them. We were better. They got a little bit fortunate with an early goal, but then we made ourselves too vulnerable. Um, I'll leave you uh, – I'll get us out of here on this. What, if any, impact do you think the performance on Wednesday has on the performance on Saturday? So it's a two two-part question for me. Any different decisions the manager will make to the squad for Saturday based on what he just saw? And do you are you worried at all that chasing with 10 men, the, the loss of confidence, the impact psychologically on the team will have an impact on the performance Saturday as well? Well, I'll start with the second bit. Yes, I think it'll have an impact. But... Um, but... But but when Theo starts, we win, which is pretty much the case for a long period of time now. Uh, it'll be different. There'll be a buzz. It's in London at least. Um, and so the squad will be exactly what it was always going to be, though, right? I mean, th yeah. there's really not a change he can make. It's back to Sanchez, Theo, Ramsey, Ozil, Cazorla, Coughlin. And then I guess the only question is, Murtisacker, but let's assume he's not ready. It's Nacho, Koscielny, Gabrielle, and Bellerin with Czech, obviously. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Um, quick prediction for Chelsea? Uh, I'll stick with 1-1. One, one. I know we did this last pod, but I'm curious if it if it changed for you. Um, yeah, I mean, I have to admit, I saw 2-1 Arsenal because Chelsea have been gifting chances and they haven't been creating much themselves, but they just scored four goals. Their confidence is high. They played at home. We went away. We had to chase for 60 minutes, you know, with, with 10 men, we got our asses handed to us. The mood in the camp won't be great. It, it certainly doesn't feel like a turnaround, but I'm going to stick with my two, one arsenal prediction because, um, you know, that's the kind of idiot I am. Uh, Paul, I appreciate you being willing to talk about this. Uh, James, to be fair to James actually has a, a real career that he has to, participate in so we look forward to having james back saturday hopefully for more upbeat conversation um in the meantime you should be following this gentleman his name is Poznan in my pants on twitter uh paul as always it's a pleasure to talk to you even if it's on a down note yes it was a real pleasure yeah I, it sounds like it um and to those of you who stuck with us and listened to this you know we we felt like we should do a podcast just because it's it's the right thing to do we feel a sense of obligation um but it certainly wasn't a great occasion to do it. So thanks for sticking with us. If you want to leave us a review somewhere, um, one star, two stars, three stars. I mean, we prefer the most stars possible, but we certainly understand if you're hugely disappointed with our performance based on the rotation. Um, my name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. We'll be back after the Chelsea match, hopefully in upbeat spirits with the whole team assembled, ready to break down a very important win, hopefully kickstart the season. It seems like every year we keep talking about the game that's going to kickstart our season. And, um, you know, we're, we're short on kickstarts. Maybe that's what Arsene Wenger should have bought uh, in the transfer window as a starter, like a, a kickstarter. Because in anyway, okay, we'll talk to you soon. Cheers, and uh, hopefully we'll enjoy what happens Saturday.
Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.